0: Hi, this is Matt Sleppen, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's interview is with Cedric Bobo, the co founder of Project Destined, which is a nonprofit educational program that uses real real estate deals and real investment in those deals to teach and empower young people in underserved communities financial literacy and business skills and to bring them to the other side of the table from observer to participant and the revitalization and development of their neighborhoods. I think three things to listen for in the interview. First, how did Cedric, himself having grown up in an underserved neighborhood, find a pathway to success in his first career, including getting his MBA at Harvard Business School and then as a principal at the Carlisle Group? Second, how and why did he leave that career to start Project Destined? And third, Think about the Project Destined model as a new lens through which to view education and training for underprivileged kids, and also a different way to think about community participation and engagement in gentrifying, changing neighborhoods. A lot of food for thought. As always, thanks to JLL for being our sponsor in the podcast series. JLL is one of the leading real estate professional services organizations across the globe, for more information on Jll, visit jll.com/voices. If you're enjoying the podcast series, please pass it on to your friends and rate us on iTunes. We're always looking for guests who might bring different perspectives and contributions in the industry. If you're a loyal listener, think through the kinds of interviews you've heard and whose stories might add to our series. Send me feedback to me at my day job at TerraSearch Partners. My email is Matt at terrasearchpartners.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. So Cedric, first of all, I'm in your kitchen in a townhouse in in DuPont Circle, where I'm staying in an Airbnb a block from here. This is my old neighborhood. Welcome home. Thank you. I I love where we are, but give me the headline of what Project Destin is, what it's about, what it means, why you left private equity to do this, if that's the case, and just kind of Give a sense of why we're talking today.
1: Yeah, I mean, Project Destin is ultimately about transformation. I mean, we wanted to teach folks in their neighborhood how to be part of the transformation. We didn't want folks to be left behind. But if you don't give them skills, you don't give them access, they can't participate. So ultimately, we're about teaching the skills and giving the access so folks can participate in transformation of their neighborhoods.
0: Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into all of this because yeah. if we're if some word, the word transformation may mean the word gentrification. Yeah, of course. And gentrification, I, I, my definition is it's good until it's bad, and then, <laughs> then it's really bad because it's too
1: much. It's good until it takes over your life.
0: That's right. You want <laughs> you kind of want these things, so we'll talk about that. Yeah. But what you do is you bring, are these high school students in? So, so, we,
1: so we really have two programs. There's one that's high school and college students, and the other program is with the military veterans. Uh, but the programming is very similar in that we teach you soup to nuts how to invest in your community. Uh-huh. So
0: how do you, te- how much is teaching and how much is doing? So-
1: yeah, I mean, I would say it's, I mean, we try and do as much doing as absolutely possible, uh, but we try and ground you first in the process. I mean, I think that in so many neighborhoods across the country, people feel that gentrification is taking over because it's never been demystified what change means. Mm-hmm. So we start out by teaching our students what is the process of development and investment. Uh, And then we have programming where you try and do it yourself. So imagine if it's six core modules that we teach. The first module is, hey, what is the development process, right? So we ground you in that. You get all the fundamentals of that. Modules two through six are now it's time for you to do it. We'll have a module on design. We'll take you for an hour and we'll teach you what are the basic elements of design, creation, ideation. And then you've got three hours and you're working on a live project in your neighborhood to design something. Mm -hmm. And then you compete Shark Tank style for a scholarship. So again, you go soup to nuts. How do you do it? But then you get your chance to do it, and you compete.
0: Wow, well, wow. and and you're doing this both with students, both college and high school, and then with military. That's exactly right. Yeah. What what's we'll, we'll come back to that. What's the organization? This this is a nonprofit. Yeah. You run the nonprofit. You go to work every day. Mm. Like so, it's it like? Uh,
1: so it's really. There's two different sort of elements of what we do. The first is highly engaged training, apprenticeship-style training. Yeah. Every student goes to that program, whether you're a veteran or you're a student. The other piece to it is my partner and I are investors. We like invest in capital. So the other side of the piece is a for-profit business, and all we do is look at things to invest in. We integrate the two by all of the, co- all of the students that we teach. They go through real investments and learning how to invest in their own neighborhood. Does that make sense?
0: It does make sense, but it's complicated. And through the hour, we're going to unpack this and also figure out how you got to doing this in your place. Mm. But of the investments, are you also investing on your own outside? You do real estate investments, Generally, and this is a piece of where you put real estate. Yeah, so my
1: partner and I invest generally, whether it's developments or acquisitions, we're out in the marketplace actively working to invest. Mm -hmm. The connection point for us is that we bring it all home by taking our students through real deals, almost compared to if you're gonna learn how to play soccer you'd rather learn from a former soccer player or a current soccer player than you would for someone who just talks about playing soccer. And so mm-hmm. we try and involve our students in real deals because that makes it real to them, because it is, mm-hmm. and they get a chance to be some part of some change.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is there a headquarters for Project Destin and a staff and a team? And- <laughs> yeah,
1: so my partner and I are based here in D.C. The rest of our staff are in New York, <laughs> and then the program moves around the country. So we're in seven cities today. Um, Our core program is in Atlanta and the Bronx currently. You know, partners include Brookville and Cortland Partners in those markets. Um, And then we do smaller format programs in other cities, whether it's Oakland, whether it's soon to be L.A., soon to be London, et cetera.
0: Okay, so we're going to get into this, but our podcast is about hearing people's stories and how they got to the place they got, and then we'll talk about this, but I want to put a pin in all the questions about Project Destin and make it real in terms of the work that you're doing. But how, where did you grow up and how did you get to real estate? There's some pathway there, but talk yeah, about
1: that. no. So I'm born in a small town in Mississippi, about 10,000 folks called Sardis, uh, but then really grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. My mom moved there when I was probably five or six years old and I always had this fascination with business simply because my mom would often take me to work with her. And I fell in love with FedEx when it was a young company. Uh It was super dynamic in my hometown, Memphis. Uh, And I always liked being around folks who are working towards a goal. So I fell in love with business. I then studied engineering uh, and got really lucky and spent a year abroad at Oxford where I played rugby with a bunch of folks who were doing investment banking. So I came back, spent a summer at Solomon Brothers and got the bug uh, for investment banking and then private equity. Mm -hmm. Um, And then spent 20 years sort of doing that, investment banking first and then private equity later. Uh, But I always loved this idea of investing in transformation. So the idea that you know I would go and invest in a railroad or a shipping company, but it was always invest to transform or to impact, and then you'd reap some rewards. And I did that for 20 years, and I just, I mean, I I loved it, but I always had this entrepreneurial bug inside of me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, again, love what I was doing but saw a unique opportunity to try and really merge the part of me that loved social impact and the part of me that loved investing. That's what I'm doing now.
0: And if you think about it, Invest for Transformation is what, Private equity does. It's a nice way to put it because sometimes yeah. it's a, it's a tough business. Of course. Did it start in real estate for you? And at Solomon Brothers that was more investment banking, yeah. not private
1: equity. So Solomon Brothers was all traditional investment banking, but it was investment banking for private equity firms. So I my clients were private equity firms. You were basically finding things for them to invest in. Right. The I got the bug then. Um, came finished finished school and came back to a firm called DLJ. And mm-hmm. spent two years doing, again, investment banking, but focused on the, um, the media and entertainment side. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all the while focused on getting into private equity. So I finished my two years at DLJ, which is sort of your normal analyst program. Right. And then I went to, went to Silicon Valley and worked for two years at a, at a middle market private equity firm. Huh. And that was my first time investing money. Mm-hmm. And it was great. It's fascinating.
0: And what was middle market private equity in Silicon Valley? Is that not venture capital? It's... No.
1: So we were we were based in the home of venture capitalists, but we were a middle market firm, really investing in more mature businesses. Uh-huh. So lots of my investments were in the middle of the country. Now, we just happened to be based in in Silicon Valley. The unique part of the investment period that we were in is that we were heading into a downturn. What year this? Okay. was, I started in 2000, 2001, we're heading into an economic downturn. Uh, and so you begin to see how sometimes investing and in transformation doesn't go perfectly. And that's an important lesson of seeing when you have the best of intentions, but things don't go perfectly, but you got to stay around and fix them. Mm-hmm. And so I spent two years doing that, really investing, transforming, fixing a lot, but then trying to reap rewards, and then I went to business school.
0: Uh-huh. And where was college?
1: University of Tennessee. Okay, and yeah. where was business school? Harvard Business School.
0: Okay, good for yeah. you. So uh, to make it real, what's one of those middle market companies in the middle of the country? What's that look like? And you're a kid, this is before business school, but yeah. I'm always wondering. So what? What? just give one example. I mean,
1: investing in a middle market company, and in my case, I'll give you my favorite example is, we invested in a in a cemetery business. I mean, imagine the business of providing home goings, uh-huh. uh, and that's that business was based out in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. I so was it's just me. There. You were there. Okay. So it, that's me going out almost every week to King of Prussia from San Francisco, and you're working hand in hand with the management team, trying to do the best they can in a very tough economy. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're trying to both preserve jobs, but also execute a business plan. Uh, and return capital to the pension funds that invest behind you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I loved it because when things don't go perfectly, everyone on the investment teams has to really shore up and do their best. And so I, I, it was a perfect education before going to business school because you want to see when things go right and when they go in perfectly, how do you fix them?
0: Mm-hmm. I think the word life cycle may fit in a number of different ways into that particular <laughs> <laughs> investment. Um, okay, so then you go to business school, yeah. and do you retool? How did that change your perspective on things?
1: I mean, like, like so many, I mean, like most folks who enter private equity, I mean, there's, uh, there's, there's almost a requirement to go to business school to, to keep moving up in an organization. So like right. many folks, I did my two years in investment banking, two years of private equity off to business school, all with the goal of coming back to private equity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I spent two years at HBS, where it was more like a two-year interview, mm-hmm. where you're working to get back in the field you just left. Uh-huh. It sounds a little bit weird, but it's really getting the badge of honor so you can go ahead and move forward into your more permanent career.
0: Yeah, yeah I totally get it. It's funny. The first time I interviewed in my uh, re- recruiting career, someone who had gone to Harvard Business School, I was a little mm. bit intimidated. It was just ah. kind of funny thing. And are. I said to the guy, I said, so what did you learn? He said, it was okay. <laughs> and who did you meet? And he said, it was okay. <laughs> if you're going to go to Harvard Business School yeah. and not learn anything and yeah. certainly not make connections that you can feel good about, yeah, then you were, I don't know what he was doing. <laughs> no, I don't know. what. That, I mean, I mean, he
1: sounds like he wasn't doing the right thing. So. <laughs> he wasn't doing the right thing. No, I love the place.
0: So where did yeah. you wind up after
1: that? So I went to a firm called DLJ Merchant Banking yep. based in London. So mm-hmm. my wife... You know, I um, grew up in London. You know, we had uh, dated long distance for four years. Right. Uh, and we decided to make London home. Mm-hmm. So I uh, I went to London and again, doing buyouts, but focused on European buyouts. So looking at businesses, whether it be Scandinavia, whether it's France, whether it the UK, but the same format of trying to find businesses you can impact and earn a return. Mm-hmm. And what years is this? Now? So this is 2000, uh, 2004 that I, uh, I I finished HBS in 2004 and joined DLJ Merchant Banking that, same sum- that summer.
0: And let's do an overlay on this because yeah. I'm curious. So you're black guy, black yeah. guy at Harvard Business School. Does <laughs> yeah. that mean anything in, in private equity? And then in London, American, like just yeah, play that, that theme was, out for a second. I at mean,
1: HBS, I don't, not so much. I mean, HBS is a pretty amazing environment. I mean, everyone who shows up there, <laughs> they're a little bit intimidated by the place. You're a little bit nervous. You're trying to figure out your own. Your own way, right? Uh, I would say private equity isn't the most diverse of fields, so you know there are days you wake up and you don't see lots of folks who look like you, and I mean that can be overwhelming. But you got to keep pushing forward. And mm-hmm. the great thing about HPS is that you know they they arm you with the tools to go out and persevere. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you get to Europe, I mean, or to London, in my case, you know what was nice is that, uh, and I'm sure jazz musicians would probably say this about their time there, doing the civil rights movement is that like, I felt like the stereotype was that of an American, not a black American. Uh, and so I felt there were almost positive stereotypes because they think of you as an aggressive American, which is a great attribute right. for private equity guys. So I found, I found there they were more fascinated and curious about me being an American and trying to fit into buying companies in Europe, mm-hmm. much less about my ethnic background.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Actually, the jazz musicians tell that story all the time because <laughs> yeah, yeah. all of a sudden color, in that case, goes yeah, away or is viewed through a different lens. It, is. it isn't as painful as our lens is.
1: Yeah, I, I think that more there's more of the curiosity about an American businessman than there uh-huh. is sort of your, your ethnic roots, which uh-huh. is, I think, helpful in your early career, certainly.
0: Uh-huh. And doing this in Europe, and then we're going to get back to the mm. States, but doing this in Europe, did that change your perspective on the business, and did it change your perspective on digging into those businesses?
1: The, the piece of private equity folks don't appreciate is that it's, it's, it's a people business and that you got to get comfortable with, with the business as well as the management team. And so I think the difficulty of being an American trying to buy a business in, for example, France or Scandinavia, is that you don't have as much cultural knowledge. And so when you're sitting down with a CEO, some of the things you take for granted in the U.S. context are much more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean that's pretty easy to figure out. It just takes time. You have a little bit of a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. Um, but I you know you just work your way through it, and you've got a big team and you push you push forward.
0: Mm-hmm. So then what brought you to the states?
1: Yeah, so um uh, the firm I worked for was going to be spinning out of Credit Suisse, right? Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure what that, uh, what a spin out means. I should re-enter the marketplace. And I made one call to a headhunter, and Carlisle was looking for someone. Mm-hmm. uh and so I think I called Headhunter in June. I was working at Carlisle at that that August mm-hmm. and so it was just it was the perfect time in like, London or back here back here in the, back here in d c uh-huh so it was a big move for my family that we sort of moved from london uh, back to Washington
0: okay, now we're in two thousand six pre two thousand five two thousand five yeah,
1: okay good, so you got some
0: time before the financial crisis yes, of course and so what did you do at Carlisle and did that get
1: into real estate or no no, so I always say my entry into real estate was twofold. One, most of the businesses that I looked at at Carlisle had a leasing component to it. So Mm -hmm. I always enjoyed businesses that had stable cash flow and leasing is very stable cash flow. Um, And then my wife and I, starting in London, we were always buying real estate outside of my work. So we would buy fixer uppers um, all around London in the US. And that was kind of my other entree into, into real estate. But, um, but to your question at Carlisle, when I originally joined, um, it was the automotive group and then it was ultimately the automotive and industrial. Okay. Uh, and so I was doing almost back to my middle market roots, investing in industrial businesses in the early days I had automotive and transport component to them, but then more broadly industrial. So how
0: kind of talk about your career path through Carlisle yeah. and maybe signature deal things yeah. that felt good and were great.
1: No, I mean, I had a, a phenomenal time at Carlisle. I mean, um, you know, one, I was smart, part of a really small team to start. Um, we, I, when I first joined, we were in the process of buying Hertz rental car, which was an $11 billion deal. That was a lot of fun, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, uh, to to work on. Um, but the great thing about Carlisle is that it feels like it's a really big place to the outside world, but internally it's a small place full of extraordinarily hardworking folks. Uh, and I was fortunate because... I'd grown up in the transportation world with my mom at FedEx, and I was now able to sort of re-explore transportation right. in the context of an investor. So for me, it was a double win. It was, an, it was it was this industry sector I love, but also the chance to invest in that sector. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I looked at everything from railroads to ships to ADT of Korea. So a range of investments across that, that, that 10 years.
0: Mm-hmm. And how long were you there? So you're there- 10 years. 10 years. 10 years. Yeah. So 05 to two thousand fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Good. And
1: so was Fed It was Hertz a like kind of a signature deal for you. Well, I, I joined. I mean, I joined Hertz when it was already in process. So I don't. I've never considered Hertz sort of my deal. Like my the signature deal for me was. I, I always love transportation. Uh-huh. I mean, it's just like where my heart is. Right. Um, and so the signature deal for me was Genesee Wyoming. I mean, this is a short line railroad, and most folks have no idea what short line railroads are, but. It's the ultimate real estate play in a sense of, you know, lots of companies, lots of entrepreneurs um, have tried to look at the rail sector. Most folks focus on the the class one railroads, Mm -hmm. Uh, but there are these amazing railroads, class two and three, which are literally like, in some cases, 10-mile spurs or 100-mile spurs that are all across the country that transport goods. And so there's a company, Genesee Wyoming, that owns literally 100 small, tiny railroads. Mm-hmm. What's uh, the first name? Genesee and Wyoming. Okay,
0: Genesee and Wyoming.
1: Yep. So Genesee Wyoming, short-line railroad company. Um, phenomenal CEO, Jack Hellman, who's still a dear friend. Uh, and having interest in transportation, I had been tracking Genesee Wyoming for five or six years. Um, met Jack as they were preparing to bid on a company called Rail America. Um, And we persuaded Jack to let us invest in that transformation. So again, it's number one, buys number two, we got a chance to invest in that transportation. And the reason why I say it's my signature deal is because You know, that's the deal where there hadn't been many real estate investments by, excuse me, railroad investments by private equity firms. And we got a chance to do one of the first. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was amazing to be one of the first, but also to be super successful almost immediately out of the gate.
0: And so you invest. How much of your investing is the capital to make that deal work with their acquisition? And then how much is being their advisor through the life cycle of your investment? and helping them bring a different approach to the business
1: well i would say in this case it was you know we were more critically capital providers but we provided capital that was tough to get right mm-hmm. so they're trying to go out and make a transformative acquisition number one buys number two it's going to really sort of become a six billion dollar company uh and that's unheard of in the short line rail sector And so I think we were there at an incredible time for for the company, but also provided a unique piece of capital that could go from being 300 million or 800 million, depending on what they needed. We were really there to make sure the deal got done for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was one where I think we did an amazing job for the company, but also for the sector and helping it transform.
0: Mm It's interesting when I think about companies doing this. I know private equity in Carlisle is a great capital partner mm. for real estate guys who do value-add acquisitions. Yes. Right? This is the story, and, and Carlisle and other many other firms do that same thing. If I think of corporate private equity, which mm. I don't understand so well— mm. Um, I think both of providing capital, but then I think of providing sophistication or a different way to look at it. Yes. And there's cynical views of this, which is, hey, we're going to just split it up and financial engineer it away. That's the of negative course. side of this. Or we're going to bring a different kind of knowledge to help you get to that next level of wisdom and execution that's also different. Yes. And I don't know if you had both sides yeah, in the I work mean, that you I, did. Mean, I
1: think you look at... I mean, I, th- I think what you try and do is find good companies that have good cash flow characteristics. Mm-hmm. And as a private equity firm, you're trying to get them from A to B and providing whatever tools are most applicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in large private equity, I find that in many ways you're trying to improve the quality of the capital structure mm-hmm. and probably bring in some new management muscle. Mm-hmm. Uh, in middle market private equity, in most cases, you're bringing all those things and more. And that they've probably got a great senior management team. They probably are missing a few pieces in the middle, uh-huh. and also there may be some there may be some cultural elements that you try and add to the business, which uh-huh. is maybe more discipline around how they manage capital uh-huh. and how they manage the team, and just generally kind of making them more rigorous uh-huh. in the analysis phase.
0: Uh-huh. And so you end up leaving in fourteen. Yeah, you hadn't touched real estate. Mm yet, I think, maybe some of your deals had little aspects of real estate, but talk about kind of leaving the private equity world and then this new adventure, and maybe there's Mm. multiple new adventures
1: concurrently. I mean, I I always had a love of real estate. I mean, so much of my private equity career was I wanted to have a good, in some ways, safe career to take care of my family. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt like after 10 years, I preserved enough wealth to be able to take care of my family, And I wanted a new adventure, frankly, that was perfectly aligned with how I wanted to spend the next 40 years of my life.
2: Mm -hmm. And I
1: wanted to begin setting that up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, Project Destin came along. I mean, part of the inspiration was seeing a movie. But the other piece is that real estate was a tremendous passion, but also impact was a a serious passion. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, Project Destin was really a a chance to merge those two. Uh, But you never enter these things lightly, lightly, and so... You know i spent that time period from early 15 um to really kicking off project destiny in 16 really sort of thinking through what mattered most and kind of why
0: mm-hmm. and you have a partner in this so what was yeah. the genesis of the partnership yeah so my,
1: so my so my partner for green who's um a developer here in dc you know when i when i when i when i first left carlisle you know i started trying to buy a few buildings in baltimore I mean, because you live in D.C., Baltimore is right around the Mm -hmm. the corner, and there's lots of real estate that needs development in the city. And so we looked at a project in Baltimore as an amazing sort of building that needed some refurbishment. Uh, And we got pretty far along, but then it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. Um, But luckily, as I I got into the deal, we had a friend in common introduced us, and Fred and I spent two months trying to buy this building in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And I always say what I most admired about Fred was, one, he was obviously an astute real estate guy. But two is the way he—I mean—the way he walked the seller through the process in which we weren't going to move forward—made the guy want to do more deals with us, and so we continued to sort of see more deal flow because mm-hmm. we separated in a way that sort of built our credibility in the Baltimore marketplace, mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, so we met through a deal in Baltimore.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you wind up having? similar echoes of your work and skill and training in private equity where you're partnering with people, and in this case, you're partnering with sellers. Hmm. Maybe they're just selling it to you and it's gone for them, or maybe you, they buy into your vision or you're gonna execute a little bit with them.
1: The The, the wonderful one about Carlisle is that most people uh, probably don't realize is that I mean, they're, they're amazing partners to corporates, but also to other private equity firms. So the one thing I learned in my 10 years there was how to be a good partner to folks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when Fred and I began building Project Destin, I mean, you'll see at every city, we've got a partner. Um, Mm -hmm. The partner in a certain case may be Brookfield, which is a large, obviously very large developer, you know, across the globe. Uh, It may be Cortland Partners, a large developer in Atlanta. Every single city, there's some partner that we enter the city with because it brings us immediate credibility. It also helps us build other critical foundations. So we know the best construction firms, property managers, et cetera, to be able to execute well in the city.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so talk about Fred and you are now thinking of a nonprofit. Is there, you're forming a real estate company and a nonprofit yeah.
1: together? and Yeah, so uh, in 2016, I saw this movie about Detroit. I hadn't been to Detroit in probably seven years. Right. I see this movie about a young boy in Detroit who could have gone two paths, uh, and it describes one path where he becomes an architect in Detroit. Uh, And so I was really inspired. I go to Detroit a few weeks later, uh, and I was really moved. I was moved because of some of the same elements you see in D.C. and Memphis and lots of Mm -hmm. towns around the country, in that there's a population of folks who had seen the worst of times in Detroit. They'd seen the bankruptcy. They'd seen all the corruption. Now that the city was beginning to transform with lots of capital from Dan Gilbert and others, they didn't know how to become a part of that change. Uh, and it was it was it was moving because I thought that Fred and I may have a skill set that could actually create create opportunity for them, but also could meld their interests with developers. Uh, and so we created this training program where we said, you know, gentrification is when it feels like something is taking over your life and not including you. There are mm-hmm. many definitions, but that's my definition of it: is mm-hmm. that you feel like the city that you've been a big part of is now changing and there's no place for you to be you're able left to You're left out, you're going to be gone. You're completely left out. And part of that is just demystification and education, which is that you just don't know, you don't understand the development process and the resources needed to contribute to it. And so I said to Fred, you know, why don't we, you know, go to Detroit and figure out a way to bring some of our business acumen, investing in the town, but also some of our expert, uh, educational expertise and so we, in 2016, we took 15 high school students. We taught them soup to nuts one Saturday a month. How do you source it ill, finance city deal, construction design, all little mini-modules. And then we bought two, two duplexes near Henry Ford Hospital. Uh, and we gave those students basically 20% of our profits in the form of scholarships. Now, you say, how does that work, right? So yeah. we've got a 501 c 3 all it does is train students. In the early days, Fred and I funded the entire 501c3. On the other side is a for-profit business LLC structure that looks like any any for-profit business you've ever seen. Right, it's designed by Hunt and Williams. They're phenomenal. It looks just like a PE vehicle. All we do is that we go in and we train these students using the resources from the 501c3. Mm -hmm. When it comes time to invest in those duplexes, we fund that out of our LLC structure. Mm -hmm. We simply donate 20 cents on every dollar that LLC earns to the 501c3. Now, it sounds complex, but it's no different than you and I saying, we're going to go out and we're going to buy a few duplexes. And within our business model, we're going to donate a portion of the profits to a nonprofit. The Mm train students, and that's Mm -hmm. what we do in countries. I mean, cities across the country. Mm -hmm.
0: And are the size and scale of those deals is the twenty percent of the? Is there ongoing cash flow that sends it in, and also upside if they're sold? How does that? Yeah, so we the economics work out. or you need more money to support the C (laughs) three?
1: So no. So the way we do it is that um you know within our LLC there's a GP structure, or I would say it's like a top co. And mm-hmm. TopCo, if a dollar flows into there, 20 cents of that dollar goes to the 501c3. So the buildings have to generate cash flow. The cash flow is then donated to the 501c3. Mm-hmm. So we train our students is that you can only create income for your scholarship if our buildings produce a profit. So mm-hmm. it kind of binds us to the students and the students to us and that we've got to go out and find deals that produce wealth. Mm-hmm. I always say I want to teach my students the same way I teach my sons is that, you know, you to be able to donate wealth you got to create wealth mm-hmm. and so we teach our students to go out and help us source deals that make sense economically and then we share a portion of the profits with our students
0: got that so let's stick with detroit for a minute and ford hospital is that near like the motown museum i think i walked by mm. it on the way out there unless i'm like mashing up different uh, things
1: i'm not sure if it's the mo i'm not sure where the motown museum is i must say i'm not Okay. Well, yeah.
0: I walked all the way out Woodward Avenue for oh, like yeah. an hour okay, after it. ULI conference. I made a left, and there was this big thing that I think was the Ford Hospital. I may be totally wrong. Okay, it got it. I don't think you missed it. Six blocks down, we went there, and it was like really. Oh, tight. is that right? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so mm. what did you buy? So tell about one of those buildings. Yeah. And make it what what kind of real estate was it, and then how, and then describe the kids. Yeah wonderment at what they learned
1: yes so so for our students a large part of what we do is we teach them and then we'll take them on tours of real estate Mm -hmm. Um, and then they'll do activities around how much we might pay for them what we might do with them after we buy them Uh, and so my favorite tour students when we took them around our current building is that when the students walk around um, they're actually amazed some of them are amazed that people own buildings not just institutions because for most of these young people they don't know lots of folks who own buildings. I mean, I don't know lots of folks who own buildings. I started when I was 13, and so the first piece of amazement is that, like, wow, I didn't know I could actually go and buy a building from right. my buddies. I mean, there are buildings for sale, you know, in Detroit. Duplexes you can buy them for two thousand dollars. They're owned by the Land Bank of Detroit, uh, and so the wonderment starts with, I didn't know I could go out and pull together the resources and buy a building. That's job one. Two. I didn't realize the process for actually turning a home around, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the; those are the two elements of wonder. What I love about the buildings that we bought is that I love the idea of what I call shelter and income. I like going and finding a building in disrepair that we're gonna go, we're gonna go out and transform, mm-hmm. and we're gonna provide shelter to someone in exchange. We're gonna get income. Mm-hmm. Like that's what we enjoy doing. So these two assets we purchased, one of them. 3,200 square feet, near Henry Ford Hospital, it's in complete disrepair when we buy it. We're buying it for $2,500, and we're investing another $50,000 into it. But the transformation is amazing because you walk in, and everything's been pulled out of it. In Detroit, when you leave a home, when it's abandoned, people go in and they pull everything out. Right. So it's just like a bomb hit it, right? Sure. So we take our students to see it, and they're just like, they're in wonderment that we would even pay $2,500 for it, right? But then over the course of six months, we're going to reposition it to a home that someone's proud to live in. Mm -hmm. And the amazement in the students in that, one, they saw it that they could own a piece of it. And then, two, they're going to be a part of the transformation and someone's going to live there. I mean, that's the kind of wonder, I think, that will inform their habits going forward. Mm -hmm. And do do they
0: swing a hammer in the process? So some programs do that and some are more in the office figuring out? Are they doing both?
1: Yeah, no, so we don't, I mean, I think for lots of insurance reasons, we don't have them them swinging the hammers, but we let them see the full process, right? right? Uh, Because in our mind, we want to teach them to see opportunity where others may only see blight. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's very clear that there's blight in some of the areas that we're investing. It's not clear to everyone there's opportunity, and so we're trying to really instill that opportunity in our students' minds, Uh, And so most, a lot of it, a lot of it is desktop in that they're helping us look at sourcing different opportunities. And then they're going and they're seeing the transformation, but they're also seeing all the jobs that are created. I mean, there's construction jobs that are created. There's property management jobs that are being created. Right. And some of our students, they may not become developers, they become property managers or they may own plumbing companies or own like general contractors, but they're seeing that. Our sort of project is creating jobs in their hometown.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think the other thing that happens, and financial literacy is part of this, because you don't have a window into this, a, into business at all. So, you, and, and someone who looks like you has never bought anything, or it's a faceless person, you just yep. have no idea. So it's not mm. real. It doesn't make sense. The drivers don't make sense. Mm. All you finding out is the rents just went up and I'm pissed off. Yeah but now they're seeing it A to Z in their understanding. Mm. So talk about that process of engagement and learning, and there's like 14 kids in a room, what's the?
1: Yeah, I mean the, the learning piece is the, is the foundation for everything. We Every city that we go into, it starts with education, but if we can't invest, uh, we can't make it real for students. So the two always have to go together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why they have to go together is that in sports, you know, uh, the NBA doesn't start teaching you basketball when you're 21, when you're eligible to go into the league. They start when you're five years old and you go to basketball camp, you practice playing basketball while you're still watching it on TV. So in many ways, we're trying to get the students early, teaching them the foundations of, to use your term, financial literacy uh, or apprenticeship style training while they still have decisions to make about their careers. And so we start out walking them through every single element, but there's always a quick ROI in that Every class is like a mini competition with a return on their educational investment. So we go right. from, again, construction to financing, every single element, but it's real and there's competitions and a quick ROI. Huh?
0: It's interesting. i um, thinking of my daughter, and she never took a business class, mm. but she was at our dinner table, Yeah. <laughs> right? And, these, and so in our dinner table and in, in the car, yeah. listening to conversations about business and real estate. Yes. For 21 years before she actually decided she might have any interest in that. Of course. But these kids don't have any of that conversation, so their orientation is from way, way outside the stadium.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we take, I think families like ours take for granted the amount of informal education that our kids get at dinner tables and cars on the way to school. What we try and do with our students is that. If we teach them the fundamentals and then we're able to do the second piece we haven't talked about, bring in practitioners, right? So now if I bring in Brookfield to a session, they're not talking to the kids like babies about real estate. They're saying, you know what, what is NOI? Okay, I got it. So what is a cap rate? Now the folks from Brookfield are teaching with us. The folks mm-hmm. from Cortland are teaching with us. So now these informal dialogues you know, are now like not just Cedric and Fred, it's the real estate community in a city. So right. in Detroit, you're going to have all these practitioners coming in who are now co-teaching with us because we've given the kids a language to be able to engage with them.
0: Uh huh. So Steve DeFrancis is on my ULI council. So, oh wow. Okay. Uh, so we we think about Cortland, but but talk about make that real again. So let's yeah. talk about Atlanta. <laughs> yeah. And what the program looks like and an investment that you may make and then how Cortland supports you yeah. or is at the table. What's that? Talk no, I that.
1: mean, Atlanta has been an amazing partnership. Stephen DeFrancis and Cortland have been wonderful. I mean, I, I, as you were entering, I got a call from Cortland um, and we're discussing internships at Cortland for some of our students. I mean, that's that's where the rubber meets the road when we're right. training students that can then go into a place like Cortland to work. You know, but it started, you know, with um, our Bronx launch and um, Stephen wasn't able to attend so he could sort of see it live in the Bronx, but we continue the dialogue and, and in June, we met Steven at their offices in Atlanta. And by October, we had 60 students in Atlanta who were part of our, our launch. Uh, and so Cortland is an amazing firm. They've got broad tentacles around the country, but Atlanta is their home. Right. And so we're taking 60 students, uh, high school and college, so everything from Morehouse, Spelman, Georgia Tech, Georgia State, um, and five high schools across Atlanta. And they're going through our curriculum but we're also co-investing in a deal with Cortland um, at the battery in Atlanta, near Atlanta Braves Stadium. So that's amazing for Atlanta students. And then we're also looking at investments in Atlanta along the Beltline, which is um, you know, a unique piece of real estate in Atlanta where our students only hear about it. They don't get a chance typically to look at investments in that area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Cortland's been an amazing partner.
0: And are these duplexes or are we into now 20 unit apartment buildings wow, So, so or whatever the,
1: so i mean so it's it's twofold i mean the the investment um uh with Cortland is going to be a large multifamily investment um, uh-huh. we'll make a we'll be a small piece of it but we thought an amazing chance for our students to be a part of a big large development and sure, see a how large deal. developments think about large developers think about investing on the flip side we're also looking at a small development along the belt line where ironically there's a music producer tricky stewart Uh, sold his music catalog and was thinking about how to invest and bought two acres along the Beltline in an Opportunity Zone. He called me and Fred and said, what should I do with it? And we said, well, you know what? Why don't we let our students study it with you and come with ideas? So now we're in the midst of our students studying Tricky's two-acre development, and they're now pitching him on ideas. They start with design, they move to construction, they move to financing, but the whole way they're pitching Tricky on what he should be doing, and then we're gonna have a chance to invest in the deal. I mean, that's truly making it real and it's relevant to Atlanta today.
0: Now, a word from our sponsor, JLL.
2: What comes before any achievement? Ambitions, always. That's why we put ambitions at the center of everything we do, and why we always expect more more for our clients, more from each other, more out of every single day. And we don't just recognize ambitions, we thrive on them. We are 75,000 people from every corner of the globe, united in our passion to ask the biggest questions, to go further, dig deeper, and to always deliver. Achieving ambitions powers us through our day. And that makes us different to other firms. It makes us speak up, reach out, and above all, stand out. It makes us each who we are, and it makes us all JLL.
0: Now, back to our interview. So, one of the things I notice in your website mm. is celebrities. Yeah. And they may be music celebrities, yeah. I don't know if Tricky's a ce- I don't know Tricky, right, yeah, but, yeah. or sports celebrities, and does that make it, and that's fun and cool and interesting, it also may make it more accessible and relatable in a funny way than Brookfield is mm. to these kids. Talk about mm. the value of that and the meaning of that.
1: So we always preach to our students is that you've got to be compelling. Ultimately, people hire folks who are compelling. They marry folks who are compelling. They mentor folks who are compelling. So we're always trying to find compelling ways to enter a marketplace, right? So when it comes to the real estate community, you enter with a Brookfield, you enter with a Cortland, it provides an immediate compelling sort of opportunity for other developers. They take you seriously when you've got- talented, driven local developers. From a student perspective, we're talking about a sector that hasn't always been available for them. And so when you walk in and you've partnered with A-Rod and JLo or Tricky, most folks don't know Tricky, but well, I shouldn't say Many folks in the, in the in the industry know Tricky. Many folks like you and I may not know him because we're nerds. Um, uh, but... Um, don't but, call me a nerd. That's <laughs> okay. I'm a but, podcaster, uh, man. But Tricky has been a producer of everything from Rihanna's Umbrella to Single Ladies by Beyonce. So he's wow. a, an amazing music producer. Uh, and so when you mention his name among students, I mean, in Atlanta in particular, it has credibility. It. And like, like so many things, when people see you have both, that you have all the substance in the world because you're partnering with, you know, guys like Brookfield and Cortland, but they also see you've got a little bit of celebrity students just find that intriguing. And we're always trying to capture that intrigue so we can then start the education process. Uh
0: I think it's hard to bring them in because if you say, okay, we're going to talk about real estate in Brookfield, I don't think that's particularly relatable and gentrification is a Kind of big word that they understand emotionally, but not.
1: Well, the thing that we when we go in and visit schools, the, um, the thing I always ask them is that, you know, do you think the Bronx is going to be different tomorrow than it is today? Uh, and I said, do you think that a building that over here is going to be worth more in five years or less? And they all say more. I said, well, are you going to be a part of that change or not? And they're like, I don't know. And I said, well, do you want to be a part of that change? Let me teach how to become part of it. And so we always enter by saying, let us help solve a problem for you, the student. We always say, look at all the jobs that are going to be created when there's new development in the community. And we don't want you to be left behind. So Mm -hmm. let us actually at least Mm -hmm. get you familiar with what's happening so Mm -hmm. you can make a better choice.
0: Mm-hmm. So we talked about Atlanta. we talked about Detroit. Hmm. Talk about the Bronx and talk about New York and where yeah. this makes an impact there.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, so the Bronx kind of came out of nowhere. I mean, we had uh, launched in Miami and we had partnered with, with A-Rod in Miami. Uh, and at the end of the of the weekend, you know, Alex and Jen said, well, have you ever thought about the Bronx? And Fred and I were like, well, we hadn't because we haven't spent that much time. We've, we know New York very well, but not the Bronx very well. Uh, I said, well, we keep an open mind. Um, and so a few weeks later, Alex pings me again and said, what about the Bronx? And I said, well, you know, I think if we do the Bronx, I think we need we need some more firepower, right? I mean, like we're not very well known in the Bronx. And I said, for the first time, you know, we'd probably want to scale it and not do 20 to 25 students, but do 60 students. I said, so we need your help. I said, so Alex, why don't you become chair of our Bronx launch? Mm-hmm. And why don't you bring in a business person? Uh, and Alex was like, well, I just met this woman, Judy Diamond, and I think she'd be perfect. And so we write Judy a note, and Judy is, you know, if you haven't met her, she's just phenomenal. She's not just Jamie's wife. I mean, she's a HPS grad herself, and and she's just got amazing energy, and she's thoughtful. And so we partnered with, um, with A-Rod and Judy and launched the Bronx, and we got really lucky because Judy and Jamie have a foundation called Here to Here, and they actually sponsor or partner with a bunch of schools in the Bronx and so we partnered with those schools, and we recruited 60 students, and within three months, we were launched in the Bronx. Wow. Uh, and it was amazing because we just weren't launched, but we had partners like John Gray, obviously Judy and Alex. We had Viacom, MasterCard, Huntington Williams. We had the who's who of sort of like New York partnered in our launch there. Uh, mm-hmm. And it made for an amazing beginning in the Bronx. Mm-hmm.
0: So talk about 60 students and then talk about projects and, yeah. and I'm thinking the word drop in the bucket, but that's not a fair thing to think about because every drop is is a life, and every drop is can train change a block.
1: Yeah. So uh, I mean, I think when we when we met with Judy, I mean, I think everyone has this idea: of how do we immediately scale to do 500 students? And and Alex used the right baseball analogy: is that let's start out playing small ball, right. let's refine the machinery, and then scale. And that's what we've done. So we took those first 60 students through the process, and what we always try and do initially is just sort of ground them in something realistic. So the first project we looked at was buying a four-unit building in the Bronx or a six-unit building here because most students that live in apartment buildings, they understand when it comes to a PL and l Rent times 12 is revenue, operating expenses to keep it maintained, mm-hmm. and then you get profit. So we started out by really putting our 60 students on six on six different teams, and they each are evaluating a building, and they're pitching it Shark Tank style. Mm-hmm. And in that case, the panel was A-Rod, J-Lo, John Gray, Diana Oleg from CNBC, and we had a who's who, and Mariana Rivera recent hall of famer and so our students are now at yankee stadium in the corporate boardroom <laughs> pitching those folks and so the as my partner ferd always says the stage will not get much bigger in life but the great thing is that the the learnings were bite-sized and that they were looking at right. a small building in a neighborhood that they know very well and so we wanted to let them know that you can do this and you can do it in your neighborhood that was the beginning of the bronx mm-hmm. now we've scaled it to where we're doing another 60 students this fall But in partnership with Brookfield Hunt Williams and others, um, we're now going to start a three year partnership where we're training, hopefully, three to five hundred students in the Bronx on how to invest in their community. And it's not just multifamily. We've got one team focused on a hotel, one team focused on multifamily, one team focused on office, focused on a range of different concepts that are important to building community in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And
0: so tie that back mm. to the concept of gentrification and how do you be a part of the change? And is the Bronx, some of these other places maybe changing and gentrifying otherwise. Mm. Are the places in the Bronx you're going to those places that have been left behind in gentrification? Yeah. Or are they in the middle of it and the rise of all this and therefore got to do it?
1: Yeah. I, well, I think, I mean, Brooklyn is the example that's probably used in New York that's yeah, actually, pretty far gone in terms of development. I mean, I think the Bronx is fairly new, new not being months, but last few years, there's been growing interest in the Bronx in development. It's so close to Manhattan. It's Mm -hmm. no surprise that it would be on the, on a list of areas to develop. Uh, And so I think we're still early in the Bronx. Uh, Brookfield is gonna be investing in 1300 housing units in an area called Mott Haven. And we thought, what better opportunity? Because if you bring 1300 units, you've started to to invest, but you've also got to build community. And so what we're teaching our students to do is that there's new multifamily housing coming. But think about it, to build a neighborhood, to build community, you need the restaurants, the coffee shops that really reflects Bronx culture, to be available, so our students are sitting there thinking about, well, two thousand families could be coming to the Bronx or coming to Mott Haven from other areas of the Bronx. We're now training our students to use Opportunity Zone legislation, really to think about new businesses that could benefit from that new population.
2: Mm-hmm. And so
1: all of our teams are developing many business plans for things that could actually really take advantage of this new interest and excitement in the Bronx. Mm-hmm.
0: And make some of the strokes. It's a good. It's a question. Of- my daughter asks me all the time, which is as it gentrifies, Dad, you want a $4 cup of coffee. In fact, if it's $4, it probably tastes better than a $2.50 cup of coffee, but the residents of that neighborhood want a dollar and a quarter cup mm. of coffee. So, mm. do the businesses that come to the neighborhoods affect the people who are coming in? How do they affect people coming in equal to the people who are still there?
1: Well, we take a different view in this, in that, um, the worst thing for a young person in Mott Haven today is to feel as though the neighborhood is leaving them behind right. and they don't have a say. The best thing is to see new buildings, new structures that reflect their community and their culture where they have a say. Uh-huh. And so we try and ground them first in the education and demystifying what's happening Right. and then to help them build careers, get jobs, um, and build businesses that can really capitalize on the new interest, right? Because you're gonna have all kinds of new sources of demand come in the neighborhood and there are gonna be limits on stopping that, right? So we've got to be able to infuse our young people with the chance to participate. Mm-hmm. So we try and give them the means to do it. So of all of these projects the students you know are thinking about creating, Fred and I will go out and secure the funding to pursue those. The whole idea is that they, they're stimulated by our students and then we're going to try and build bridge the gap to them being started. Mm-hmm. So that's the way we approach it uh, mm-hmm. from, in terms of how do we make sure that there is inclusion as these neighborhoods transform
0: mm-hmm. And are you first, Creating the program in the neighborhood mm. or finding the deal—the deals come. Mm. I'm guessing. So it's the infrastructure of yeah. the kids first, or which? So what
1: in the case of the Bronx? I mean, it's a unique one in that like that's. So in many cases, Fred and I go in and we're making acquisitions and we may transform. In the case of the of Mott Haven, you know, I mean they're going to be 1300 apartment units that entire corridor is going to experience a pretty big transformation uh-huh. right so we walk around and we sort of try and figure out and we do it with our students trying to figure out like well what's what's missing so we present ideas to students like well you could have a gym here because you're gonna have lots of new folks that care about fitness you need restaurants you need coffee shops so We provide the impetus to the idea thematically, like gym, restaurant, multifamily, but our students take it forward and build a business plan. And in many cases, they may augment it or change it, but ultimately, the idea is theirs. We lay out what's missing when you have this population coming. They really push the business forward in terms of what's needed.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: So, this is the real estate as the wedge in there, but Mm. then the ancillary change in the neighborhood are also places that your kids see opportunity to stay and be involved.
1: Well, real, I mean, real estate is real estate is the vehicle. Entrepreneurship is what's truly transformational, right? Mm -hmm. So we're trying to use real estate to inspire entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And so we may say it's going to be a multifamily building. You're going to develop but then, what's on the ground floor? Are you going to put a restaurant there, some form of retail that really reflects Bronx culture, right? right. But that also adds to the community and can actually be a be a sustainable business.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what's next for Project Destin? So, how does how does this grow? Where does it get to? Steady state? Any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I mean, we want to be in markets across the country, uh, and so this summer. We're discussing everything from London to Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and so, but what's, what's, what's confirmed is we're going to be in LA this summer. We're doing Oakland this summer. Uh, so for us, it's going to all these markets where real estate, to use your word, is a wedge for entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're excited by the opportunity we have to be in lots of markets across the country, some large, some small, but the same sort of focus on transformation.
0: Mm-hmm. Have you worked with nonprofits?
1: Yeah, so we, we partner with lots of nonprofits in, in sourcing students, uh, or in the case of veterans, sourcing sort of veteran talent.
0: Uh-huh. And we've been talking about students. Mm. I'm, I mean, not, so I think a nonprofit housing organizations in some of these communities mm. as well. So, what we have, we haven't talked about low income housing and the relationship between that and maybe nonprofit or for profit mm. owners of, of that. Is that in the orbit of this or outside?
1: It's in the orbit, um, you know. I always use how I train my own students, as my own my own sons, as a barometer. Is that low income housing is um, is a is a is, is a it's a highly engineered and customized form of financing. Yeah. And so we always try and ground students that there has to be business merit to start. How you finance it, you can be creative, right? But I always try and ground them. At first, you got to find a building. You got to find a use for that building uh, that generates value for the community. Now, if the community needs low-income housing, there is a way to provide that and get some benefits around how you secure financing. But I never start out teaching students about low-income housing and the tax credits and all that because it's super complicated and you can sometimes lose students' interest in trying to actually work them through understanding it.
0: Also, it's not teaching them business economics it's teaching them the economics of a subsidy thing which don't have the normal drivers of supply demand and return on investment so it's maybe perverts what they might learn otherwise it should sit alongside their learning basic business principles which is your goal
1: yeah i want you to understand the real estate and the use for business and then your end customer is and how you source financing but in the beginning you gotta buy something for x and sell it for y and earn a profit and if uh-huh. you can't do that it's not sustainable
0: uh-huh
1: uh-huh um
0: what about this business aren't we talking about that's a headline that that our listeners
1: should know about it's a endlessly fascinating but yeah i mean i think the the most important piece is that you know we never created this to be like this sort of goody two shoes organization that goes around making people just feel good. We did it because we thought there was a gap in the marketplace Mm -hmm. in that lots of folks, whether veterans or students, weren't participating in the transformation of the community, and they weren't doing it one because they didn't know what skills were relevant, and two, they didn't have access. And so for us, it's about skills and access, not just about non not for profit impact. We got to start with skills and access. Mm-hmm. Back
0: up for a moment because there's a point we haven't discussed in here that you've mentioned several times because we're talking about kids, and I have kids in my mind. I don't have veterans in my mind, so tell me how that affects veterans and how that fits your mission and what your programs are
1: yeah so i mean so the veterans i mean i mean everything about project destiny has happened quite organically mm-hmm. uh my wife and i were hoping we're hosting ironically a harvard business school dinner uh, mid dinner um last year and one of the guests was a was a, a, a sort of veteran from the navy who was just accepting hbs and we were talking about all the insecurities you face in heading to business school and you know after investing that amount of money what happens afterwards And as the veteran was expressing some of his insecurities, so much of it was he needed business to be demystified so that he had a better shot at making HBS really work for them, work for him. And so what I realized is that some of the same demystification that my urban scholars need, veterans need, veterans you know, um, they leave the military with these amazing skill sets, they sometimes don't understand how to morph those into something that adds value to JP Morgan or other businesses. And so I I, um, I went to visit a set of veterans at HBS a few weeks later. I was like, wow, could what I do with students be relevant to you as a veteran? And hands down, everyone says, of course. And so we did a pilot last year And it was amazing, our veterans absorb the materials in half the time because they're big on preparation. And the great thing is that they could immediately apply it. I mean, our students, even though we make it real for them, they may not be in the job marketplace for four or five years. A veteran can be out there using their VA loan to buy a four unit building tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so we just saw with veterans the chance Mm -hmm. for them to immediately apply it. I mean, most people think of a VA loan is that I've got to go and buy a single family home to make sure my family has great shelter. Well, the same VA loan you could actually use to buy a duplex or Mm a four unit building and now you get shelter and income. So we, we're big believers that our veterans program over time may be twice the size of our student program because those veterans can immediately use it to buy a two-unit building or four-unit building and get shelter and income and go back to college from the three units they run out. And so we're really excited about that program.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you're describing what sounds like highly functional but want to be retrained veterans. Mm. Have you dealt with veterans with PTSD in this same Program?
1: We haven't. So we've only done a small pilot with yeah. 11 students. We're doing a much bigger pilot um, in Detroit with the support of Quicken Loans and the Detroit Pistons that'll launch in March. There we're taking 30 veterans. Um, and I think that so many veterans, whether direct or indirect, um have been impacted by T- PTSD so I, I think that whenever you touch a veteran you have a chance of impacting a community of folks who've who suffered from it uh, and so our goal is to roll the program out nationally and again if you see our application our application is eight questions you know we take all comers and the focus is on again retooling mm-hmm. so they can actually enter the marketplace
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. My sister runs a program in the Bay Area where she's training dogs mm. and matching dogs with veterans with PTSD. Mm. It's run by Tony LaRussa, oh, a wow. sports person. Yeah, of course. But it well, he runs the entire dog animal shelter, but this is a major program that's now getting some influence nationally. Mm. But the veterans are feeling comfort and warmth from these dogs. Of course and it's a huge way to stabilize folks
1: no i mean our veterans community deserve our best Uh, and there's so many veterans who are the victims of homelessness um, victims of ptsd it's it's our way of really positively impacting the community but once you provide them with the means for shelter and income. The one thing we hear from veterans is that the moment they learn it, they then want to partner with us to teach it in bigger scale. So Mm -hmm. we know that by training 30 folks in Detroit in March, that we're now going to have 30 folks who will probably start co-teaching with us. So we're now doing 200 the next cohort. Mm -hmm. So this is just the beginning for us.
0: Mm -hmm. So... Halfway through your career, you're a successful person in private equity. Mm. You love the business. Yeah, You're still learning. But then all of a sudden you say, okay, I'm going to move over and do this other thing yeah. where I still get to invest, but I have a mission and a purpose that of course. was missing before. Yeah. So talk about finding that and how that's driving you and how that's changed your perspective on the world. Yeah, so
1: I, I think even inside of Carlisle, even going back to DLJ, I mean, I was always... I was always an entrepreneur. I think what many people don't sort of appreciate inside of a private equity firm, and I'm sure it's the same inside of law firms, other places, is that, you at some point in your career, you've got to be a bit of an entrepreneur and you've got to generate business as well as just kind of execute deals. And I've always enjoyed the piece of the business that was out was about finding opportunities. And so to me, Project Destin was just the next opportunity for me. And I happened to find something that combines both my love of going out and finding deals with, my, with the idea of teaching others how to do it. So it's a mixture of, a, of me sourcing deals but and executing deals, but it's also a mini apprenticeship. And so to me, it was just the next big deal I sourced.
0: Well, it's the next big deal, though. It's a different thing. So mm-hmm. most people through their career need more and more, you know, There's a financial thing. And you said this earlier yeah. in, in the conversation, yeah. where you got to a point where you said, okay, I think we're provided for. So now I can be free of that side of the equation, not yeah. forever. I don't know what your circumstances, <laughs> yeah. but, but that's a big leap. Most, almost no one does that because when they get something, they see that there's a next goal for financially. So to step off that financial merry-go-round is a big challenge.
1: Yeah, and I don't think I ever stepped off it. I mean, I, I think first I mean, you have to look at your own personal circumstance. Like I'm, you know, born in a town in Memphis, Tennessee where I mean, my gosh, my first paycheck at Carlisle was more than I probably expected to make for most of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've been extraordinarily fortunate having been grown grown up in a working class town where people work hard for a buck and um, and it's all about doing well and doing good. I think when I got to Carlisle you know, I didn't, I, I never faced that fear of like, I, I think when you make it from my hometown of Mississippi and then you're at Carlisle and it's going well, I don't think you, I don't think I ever faced that fear of I can't figure out how to do it again. Mm-hmm. I think what I've tried to figure out is like, how do I do it in a way, you know, where I can build the next Carlisle, not just be sort of a piece of the machinery. And so mm-hmm. I've always wanted to build something that provided the same kinds of careers that the founders of Carlisle did. And so for Fred and I, we're just on that process of trying to build something that has an investment piece to it, an education piece to it. But ultimately, we think it will be a big platform that provides lots of careers for others.
0: Mm -hmm. It's an amazing program. It's just you're you're building a different thing. It's using all the skills that Mm -hmm. you have. It's using a passion that, is is custom made to who you are.
1: So far, so good. I mean, but every day I wake up, and I, I would say the pressure is greater than I ever felt at Carlisle, um, because ultimately, I think when you the closer you get to building something that reflects every ounce of who you are, uh-huh. the more nervous you are. Uh-huh. And so, there was no doubt in terms of. Is the transition the right one for me? Because my compass tells me it's the right one. The question is, can I live up to my expectations of myself in doing it? Uh-huh. And that pressure is real because you wake up and like you gotta keep pushing the ball forward. And I have two sets of customers, right? Like I've got the customer, you know, the eighteen-year-old at Spelman College who is wondering how to separate social justice and gentrification from investing, and is Project Destin doing it for her? And then I've got the Courtlands of the world who are saying, well, are you getting talent ready so they can actually work at a place like mine and add value? And so those two pressures are real, but like, it's a welcome pressure.
0: Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Uh, one of the questions I'm adding to my final two questions in podcasts are insecurities. Mm. Because leaders feel, and mm. you just went there, so oh, thank man. you. I mean, because leaders tell such a great story Mm. and we don't know you know humanity is about being insecure like i really get this done yeah so what what makes you nervous about this Mm. stuff or where and and you also described more pressure than you had at carlisle which i find fascinating yeah i mean so
1: i mean i i gave this um this speech at the at harvard business school i said you know insecurity has been the most wonderful and relentless driver of my career I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I think when you, re- when you grow up and you're raised by a single mom, you know, when you see her have great days and tough days, but you see the struggle and then you get to college and you don't want to mess up because you don't have a safety net. Right. Uh, and then you get to Harvard Business School and you wonder like, wow, has this all been worth it? How do I earn a return on this great degree? I think you always are faced with these insecurities, but the most wonderful thing about being at HBS is you realize that there are like 899 other people who are faced with the most amazing set of insecurities, but yet they look happy and accomplished and everything else, but you realize insecurities drive us all. And so I don't run from insecurities because I don't run from challenges. Uh, And I just know that it's a a necessary motivation sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But the point I make about... I like, I think the more you the more you care, the more insecure you are, right? Look, Project Destin, we've got a chance to go out and build big business around investing in transforming communities. We also have a chance to build a big education business around, you know, training scholars and veterans, et cetera. The pressure is as I say that to you, I'm thinking about the 15 things I haven't done today to make sure I realize that dream. So I think I just wake up every morning thinking about the 10, the 15 things I haven't done to mm-hmm. make sure that becomes a reality to also make sure I add value to Brookfield, to Cortland, to Williams, mm-hmm. to John Gray. I mean, have all these folks who make a bet on us, and these are big brands that care about their brand, that care about our work, I've got to make sure I live up to sort of the commitments I make to them. And that's a big pressure, but one I like. You know, it's
0: me, you said this before, but I think this sounds like it's true. Which is, you could have done this quietly, with stakes that could have lower stakes. Mm. You raise the stakes by having these partners. Oh yeah, I love and that. And now you got to step up to oh, yeah. that level. And when you bring in folks like that, you can't just kind of slep around. This has yeah. to be the real thing.
1: It has to, and and we we did that because you you want the Project Destined brand to mean something. When that Spellman freshman shows up at Cortland to interview or shows right. up at any firm interview and they say, well, what's this Project Dustin thing? You want them to Google it and to actually see something that actually is meaningful. And if they see that Viacom's involved and MasterCard's involved and John Gray's involved, like, okay, wow. So what is that thing? So. We put out, I mean, we put out lots of PR and press about the work because we want the brand to be meaningful Mm -hmm. and a value to students. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if they don't, if the brand doesn't mean something to the outside world when a student shows up, it doesn't help them get a job. And ultimately, we're going to be measured by do we create better life outcomes for our scholars? If we don't do that, we haven't won.
0: Mm-hmm. hmm Totally true. So last question, yeah. if you gave advice to a young person entering their career, in our case, it's always a career in real estate, but yeah. a young person entering their career, what would that advice be?
1: I mean, one is I give, I give the same point is don't be afraid to be afraid. I mean, you're going to encounter fear. If you love something, you're going to be nervous about it. Ask, you know, ask Tom Brady, ask Alex, ask any great athlete they're always have butterflies, then they go perform. So my whole point is, don't be afraid to be afraid, but you always got to perform. You got to execute. Um, and, and then, you know, in terms of pursuing your dreams, it's not always one step. I mean, I'm doing what I love, but there are five steps from Tennessee to Oxford to DLJ to Carlisle to, to Project Destin. I mean, like, this is my dream, but there are five steps along the way I get closer and closer, uh, but I got to execute every step of the way. Thank you very much. Thank
0: you. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for the time. I love your
1: kitchen. (laughs) We will keep talking. Thanks
0: so much. This episode of Leading Voices in Real Estate has been brought to you by JLL. The firm's in-depth local market and global investor knowledge delivers the best-in-class solutions for clients, whether a sale, financing, repositioning, advisory, or recapitalization execution. Are you interested in how to make your ambition a reality? Learn more at jll.com voices. That's jll.com slash voices.